basically we need to make the world better because it's not great all the time, is it? Um, I've got a little song. I don't think I'll sing it for you. You might know this Beatles song. Uh, hey Jude, uh, hey Jude, don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. Got a few singers down the front. Remember that you begin to make it better. Yeah, you know what? Yeah. A few people know the song. It's a Beatles song. Yeah, and it's not over 50 years old yet, is it? So yeah. Um, hey Jude, you, you probably know the song. It talks about uh, taking a sad song and making it better. Uh, well, how do you do that? Well, the advice here, the advice that the Beatles give us, uh, Paul McCartney gives us, is to let her, whoever the her is, let her under your skin, and then you can begin to make it better. I'm not sure if uh, we actually understand what that means. Uh, some people suggest that this song is about taking heroin, uh, injecting it under your skin, and that will make life better. Uh, that's actually not what the song's about. In fact, taking heroin will never make, take, doing drugs will never make your life better. It will only make it worse, so don't do that. Um, this song, it's actually written, I don't know, does anyone actually know what this song's about? Any idea? What the actual context is? It's actually written about a divorce. Uh, it's written about, um, it's actually advice for this young boy uh, whose parents have just split up. Uh, this is the context of the of the song, Paul McCartney, one of the main guys in the Beatles, one of the main songwriters, uh, he wrote this song, not for anyone called Jude, he actually changed the boy's name, uh, but he wrote it for a young guy called Jules, Julian, uh, Jules. Uh, they changed the names, the name for obvious reasons. Uh, see, Jules, little five-year-old boy whose parents split up, Jules was Jules Lennon. Uh, John Lennon, the other main guy in the Beatles, uh, was his dad. Uh, many of you would know that uh, John Lennon uh, left his first wife and went and married uh, Yoko Ono. And so this, uh, this song was actually written by Paul McCartney uh, for Jules to kind of give him some advice now that his dad had left him, now that he was kind of left at home, uh, his mum was sad from the divorce, he was upset. Uh, this is advice uh, from Paul. Paul got to know John's kids, obviously. Uh, and when you kind of look at the song, uh, when you kind of know that context, it seems like it's kind of tough advice, doesn't it? Uh, in the midst of divorce, even though your dad's just left, he's off with this other woman who's probably wrecked your family structure. If any of you guys have been through divorce, if your parents are divorced, you would know what this feels like. Uh, what's the advice he says? He says, don't make it bad. Don't make this a bad story. No, take this sad story of divorce and make it better. Uh, he says, let her under your skin. It's like the her there is actually Yoko Ono, the one that um, John Lennon went and left for. He says, let her under your skin. Go, go and try and get her. Um, try and understand her. Try to love her and forgive her. Uh, that's the advice of the song, forgive her. Uh, is essentially the message. Uh, and then you'll begin to make it better. It's pretty hard advice, isn't it, for a five-year-old boy? Um, I'll just take that off the screen for a bit. It's hard. 
in the midst of relationships, in relationship breakdown, it's hard for us not to just get angry and actually make the sad story even worse, uh, make, it, make it harder. It's hard sometimes, I think, for us not to just withdraw and distance ourselves from the situation and, and not try to resolve anything. They're two of the big temptations, I think. The hardest thing is actually to approach the one who's hurt you, uh, to go after them, to try and make the sad story better. Uh, that's a very hard thing to do. It's hard to forgive someone who's hurt you so deeply. Uh, no, I don't want to build a whole theology around a Beatles song. I don't think that's, that's worth it. Um, but this lyric, this chorus, this advice, it actually kind of sums up what God does in Genesis 12. Uh, in Genesis chapter 12, God intervenes into world history, into the biblical history, and he says, I'm going to take this sad song of Genesis chapter 1 to 11 and I'm going to make it better. I'm going to make it all better. Uh, God doesn't just withdraw. Uh, he doesn't just smash us in our sin. No, he does something. He actually goes after us, makes promises to mankind, and he says, I'm going to make this sad song, this sad story, I'm going to make it all better. That's Genesis 12. It's a pivotal moment in the Bible. Uh, tonight we're going to, we're going to review uh, Genesis 1 to 11. That'll take us a little while to do that. Uh, we're going to look at this sad story in depth, just so we kind of feel the weight of it, how we fall into it ourselves. But then we're going to look at two other things, and they're on your sheet, on your outline there, if you're a note taker. Uh, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 12 and how God actually says, I'm going to make it better. I'm going to reverse what's been going on in those first 11 chapters. And finally we'll see that God actually is making it better right now as he changes our sinful hearts. Uh, So let's get into it. Uh, The sad story of Genesis 1 to 11. Uh, If you were here last week, you would remember that we're doing this Bible overview thing, Uh, going from the start of the Bible to the end of the Bible, seeing how it all fits together. And last week, we just looked at those first three chapters. Uh, We saw in Genesis 1 and 2, we saw how God kind of set the world up, how he made it good, how he made it perfect. Genesis 1 and 2, there were no sad songs. Everyone was just running around clicking their heels, I suppose. You know how people do that? They kind of click their heels together when they're happy? Maybe not. Maybe people don't really do that. Um, There was no sadness in Genesis 1 and 2. It was all good. It was perfect. In the Garden of Eden, they were in right relationship with God. They always listened to him. They always did what he said. He loved them. They trusted each other like best friends trust each other. Uh, They were in right relationship with each other. Adam and Eve had a great relationship. And the creation was good. Everything was right in Genesis 1 and 2. But then in in chapter 3, what we saw last week, everything went pear-shaped, didn't it? It all went bad. They stopped trusting God in that kind of moment of defiance. They started calling the shots in their own life. They said, God, we, we want to be in the centre. We want to do it ourselves. We don't want you telling us what to do. They said, God, just back off. Just leave us alone. We want to do life our way without you. So chapter 3, where we ended up last week, we saw that it ended in divorce. The relationship broke down between God and mankind. 
uh, Adam and Eve, they actually got what they chose. In there, kind of shaking their fists at God and saying, we don't want you in our life, just back off. Uh, God actually gave them what they were asking for. Uh, he said, um, you'll have to be separated from me. You can no longer live with me. And he kicked them out of the garden they were banished. They could no longer live with God. And outside the garden, separated from God, under the curse of sin, we saw that they were under the reign of death. Death was now a reality for Adam and Eve, for people. Uh, there was one moment of hope that we talked about in Genesis chapter 3.15. We saw that God made a promise. There's that little ray of light in the midst of all that darkness. God made a promise that one of Eve's children, one of Eve's descendants, would overturn this problem of death. They were called a serpent crusher. Someone would, would tread on the snake's head and crush him, would overthrow sin and death once and for all. But in the process, he himself would be killed. Genesis 3, where we finished up last week, was a sad story, a very sad story indeed. And as you read, as you keep reading in the book of Genesis, uh, you see that it actually doesn't get that much better. Uh, Genesis chapter 4, uh, we kind of read chapter 4 and you're looking for this guy, this serpent crusher, you go, who will it be? Two candidates turn up, Cain and Abel, and you think maybe we'll be one of them. But then they get jealous of each other. One of them kills the other. Uh, instead of the kind of perfect life that we hope for, people now sin. Uh, people get angry, people kill each other. Death is what happens outside of the garden. Uh, and, and this just gets reinforced in chapter 5. Uh, I didn't make anyone read Genesis chapter 5 tonight. It's a big long list of names. It's one of those genealogies. Uh, there's all these different people in Genesis chapter 5, in that next chapter. Uh, it's a big long list. People who lived, how long they lived for, who their sons were, who their daughters were, occasionally who they married. But as you read it in this long list, what you hear is this refrain which was never meant to be there. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Over and over again. Here's this refrain, and he died. What we see in Genesis chapter 4 and 5 is that in the end death gets us all. Uh, we don't live on this earth forever. It's a sad story. God never designed it that way. We were supposed to live with him forever. But now, because of our sin, we die. Uh, we don't like to think about death very much in our culture, I don't think. Uh, we don't see it very often, which is a good thing. Um, but you kind of see it in the language we use, don't you? Just how we don't like death. Uh, we don't actually use the word death or died that much. We have these euphemisms. Uh, we say, oh, they've passed away. They're pushing up daisies. They've kicked the bucket. They've gone to meet their maker. And we use all these different sayings. We don't actually say they've died. Uh, Laura, my wife, her grandpa passed away. I slip into the same language. He died last week. 
Um, we don't like to say it because it's so final. Uh, but death, what Genesis chapter 4 and 5 show us, is that death is unavoidable, isn't it? Uh, here we are, a room of mostly young, uh, I'm a bit older, mostly young, healthy uni students. But here's a rock-solid truth for each one of us. Uh, it doesn't matter how postmodern you are, how much you don't actually like absolute truth. In 100 years, every single one of us will be dead. We won't be here. That's a rock-solid truth. Unless you live to your 130, which I don't think will happen for any of us, every single one of us will have met our maker. If you're into statistics, one out of one people die. It's the truth. Um, you can't avoid it. We need to deal with it. We need to work out in this sad story that we live in how we're going to deal with this problem of death. And what the next few chapters, as you keep reading through Genesis, as you move through chapter 4 and chapter 5, what the next few chapters, with the story of Noah, chapter 6 to 9, what they actually make explicitly clear is that on that day when we do die, on that day when we meet our maker, we will either meet him as his friends or as his enemies. That's what the story of Noah makes so clear to us. Uh, There are only two types of people in the world. There are those who have taken hold of God's rescue plan, those who have said, yes, God, I want that place of safety. I'm going to put my trust in you. And there are those who in their sinful pride say, no thanks, God. No thanks. And they end up, like in the story of Noah, being destroyed. I don't know if anyone's seen the Noah movie. Yes. Apparently it's terrible. Um, There's a Noah movie out at the moment, in case you you don't know about it. Don't recommend. <laughs> <laughs> it's really it actually is a different. I've heard that it's. I haven't seen it. I've read reviews. I've talked to a few people. I've heard that it's long. That it's boring. It's historically inaccurate. Um, it's got a bit of action. It's got rock monsters. Someone. Can I give a spoiler alert? It's probably, it's probably worth getting on DVD, maybe. <laughs> Might be down the list. <laughs> Whatever it is, people tell me that it's terrible. And they say it's a bad movie. And I reckon that's kind of okay because in the days of, it's probably trying to be like it was like in the days of Noah. See, in the days of Noah, life was actually terrible. Uh, in Genesis chapter 6, verses 11 to 13, we read this. It says, Now the earth in the days of Noah was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence, and God saw that the earth, God, sorry, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. It's not good, is it? God looks down, 
and he sees that his land, his place that he gave to mankind, that he gave to humanity, it's been corrupted. Uh, It's been destroyed. So God actually determines to destroy the sinfulness and wickedness on the world. Uh, One of the interesting things about these verses, we kind of miss it a little bit in our English translations, but in the original Hebrew, uh, the word that gets translated corrupt in verse 11 and 12 and corrupted, the root word there in the Hebrew is actually exactly the same word as the word destroy in verse 13. Uh, This is important for us to see, I think, because some people look at the story of Noah and the ark and they say, why did God just have to destroy it all? Why was God so harsh in his judgment? But the reason I'm pointing this out here is that God's actually not destroying it. It's already been destroyed, is what the text tells us. Uh, The good land has been destroyed by sin. Humans have wrecked it. They've corrupted it. It's already destroyed. So what God determines to do is he says, I'm going to destroy what's already destroyed. I'm going to wipe it out. I'm going to, I'm going to just wash that sin, that wickedness, that pain, that suffering. I'm going to wipe it all away. And just in case you think that God is still a big nasty judge who just wants to smash people, uh, we'll have a look at how much this destruction actually breaks God's heart. If you go back just a couple of verses, Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 to 7, it says this. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of his thoughts, of the thoughts of his heart, was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. God looks down, he sees the mess that people have made of his world, and it breaks his heart. It grieves his heart. Like we grieve the loss of a loved one when they die. God grieves what mankind have turned into. God weeps over what his people have become, over what the land that he made so good has turned into. Everywhere he looks is disease and death and destruction, all the the things that God hates most. And it breaks his heart. He looks down and he says, I am sorry that I have made them. I'm going to wipe this wickedness away. He says, I'm going, to, I'm going to wash my land clean. And that's what he does. Everything is destroyed. Everything is wiped clean, washed away. All that sin is just washed away by God's watery judgment. But perhaps more to the point for us here today as humans, what we see is that everyone, every person, whose image has been destroyed by sin, everyone is likewise destroyed. All the people on the earth back then, all of them destroyed, wiped away with the sin. All of those, except for those who trust in God's rescue plan. All of those who, except those who didn't put their faith in in God's plan.
in his place of safety. Would have been hard for Noah, I reckon. I don't know if you've ever tried to imagine being Noah back then. Uh, you probably haven't. That would be a weird thing to do. You could try it now. Imagine, imagine the message he gets from, from God. Noah, I want you to build a boat. I want you to build a really big boat. Yeah, right here in the middle of the desert. That's right. Yeah, I want you to build a boat. I know we've never seen a big flood before, but I want you to build a boat. And, um, oh yeah, just trust me on this one. It has to be really big because we're going to get two of every animal and I'm just going to make them come and, and they'll be on the boat with you. Um, can you imagine kind of believing that message? It's pretty hard, isn't it? Seriously, God, no one might have been saying. You want to build a boat? You going to bring all the animals? Yeah, trust me, God says. That's my plan. That's my rescue plan. Uh, that's crazy trust, isn't it, that Noah's got going on? Uh, Noah is called to trust God at his word, just like us. We're called to trust God at his word. I wonder what, um, in my imagining the other night, imagining trying to be Noah, I actually imagined maybe what people might have been saying to Noah, uh, the other people who are around. Uh, you know, people mocking him. Hey, Noah, where are the rains coming? Hey, Noah, you got the zebra on the ark yet? Been a while now, hasn't it, Noah? Where's this rescue plan? Where's this God that you keep talking about? Would have taken great courage, wouldn't it, for Noah to keep going in that hostility? I wonder how you're going with trusting God with his rescue plan here at Union. Uh, we get similar taunts, don't we? Similar mocking. Hey, Steve, what's all this God stuff in your life? You don't really believe that Bible, do you? Seriously? You think Jesus is going to come back? You believe that? You go to see you on a Wednesday? Why don't you just come down to the pub with us, have a few drinks? Like God stuff, you don't have to worry about that. Forget about that God stuff. I know when I went to uni as a young 18-year-old, I found those kind of taunts so difficult to deal with. Uh, when I first went to uni, I joined the Christian group. I, I really wanted to hide my faith. I didn't want people knowing I was a Christian. Um, there are times I remember when I snuck out of my res accommodation, my Bible kind of tucked in so people wouldn't see it. I was afraid that people would mock me, that they wouldn't like me because I was Christian, because of what I believed. Uh, you know what my problem was back then? And it still happens today. I wanted people to like me. Uh, I wanted them to think I was a cool guy. Uh, I wanted them to say, oh, yeah, Steve, he's great. And I was worried that my belief in God, my faith, might have got in the way of that. Uh, I didn't have the kind of faith that actually enabled me to pin my happiness uh, not on what my friends thought of me. Uh, I always found it really difficult uh, to not have their approval uh, in life. I wasn't like so many of you who I just kind of see wearing your CU T-shirts around in the SU. I just think that is so great uh, that you're open about being Christian here at uni. Uh, 
That just warms my heart to see people here who stand up for their faith at uni. Uh, I want to say keep doing that. Uh, The fact that I see you guys actually opening up your Bibles in a public space in the SU, knowing full well that your friends may walk past and see you, and you're not ashamed of that. Praise God for that. I do. I thank him for that. I'm so proud when I hear people actually ask questions to their lecturers and they say, I asked my lecturer this question because you didn't think that it lined up with your faith belief. Standing up for your faith here at uni is just wonderful. It's hard. It's difficult. People mock us. But can I encourage you to keep doing those things? Keep being Christian at uni. Uh, Have kind of that crazy faith like Noah where everyone else might look at you and think you're an idiot. But you know the truth. God's revealed it to you. Keep pinning your hope and your joy and your happiness, not in what your friends think of you, but in your faith, in God's promises to you. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, Don't let your happiness depend on something you may lose. It's a good quote, isn't it? Can you imagine if Noah pinned his happiness on his house? on his car, on his clothes, and what people thought of him? How would he felt when it all got washed away in that flood? No, Noah pinned his hopes on the promises of God, on the promise that he would be kept safe in that ark when he trusted in God's rescue plan. And I reckon that when that door opened of the ark, I don't know if this happened in the movie, but I reckon when that door opened and that newly washed clean world was just standing there. That would have been a moment of pure joy, wouldn't it, for Noah? To know that, maybe I haven't seen the movie, something happened in the movie? To know that his faith actually proved genuine. To get there on that last day would be a moment of pure joy. So keep going. Keep standing firm. Keep living by faith. Because God never breaks his promise. God never What's his people down? As we get back to the text, uh, we see that God, God has actually made a fresh start with Noah. By, the, by Genesis chapter 9, um, you, might, you might be thinking, if you're just reading Genesis for the first time, you've started the Bible, you know, you're just working your way through it for the first time, you might be thinking, well, maybe this sad song of Genesis 1 to 9 is now over. Maybe God has made it better. Uh, maybe it's all going to be good now. Josh is shaking his head. Josh has read on. Uh, sadly, even Noah falls into sin. Uh, you just read a couple of paragraphs. Genesis chapter 9, verse 21. Uh, keep reading just a little bit further. And we see Noah himself just behaving like a drunken uni student. Uh, he's ended up drinking too much. He's naked. He's passed out on the floor in his tent. Even faithful Noah falls into sin. Remember a couple of weeks ago when we did a talk on the Bible and I said um, the Bible isn't a book of role models. It's actually a rescue story. There's good things we can learn from Noah. He was faithful. He trusted God in the midst of persecution. But even Noah falls into sin. He's not the one we look to. Now the Lord Jesus is the one that we look to. Remember that. Because as you keep reading, 
that's the vibe of what we ha- of what we see happening. Uh, even though God had washed the world clean, He'd started afresh. People keep falling into sin. People keep sinning. Why? Well, because it's in our hearts. Uh, by chapter eleven. It gets so bad that people in their sin, they gather together and they start building a tower. It's called the Tower of Babel. They start building a city. uh, And they build this city in order to say something. In order to say, actually, God, we don't need you. We don't need you anymore. Uh, Look at what they say in chapter 4, in verse 4, sorry, of chapter 11. The people say to each other, let us come together. Let Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with the top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. Let us do something so people will look at us and say, they're great. Look at what they can do. People, they plot together, they plan. They think that if they build this great city with this great tower in the middle, then they will be great. Then people will look at them and say, look how amazing they are. What are they doing? Well, they're doing exactly what I used to do. Uh, what I still do at times. Try to find my identity, uh, my sense of worth, my value, in what other people think of me, instead of in what God thinks of me. Uh, it's a trap we all fall into, isn't it? We try to build our own identity structure based on what people will say about us, based on the fact that we'll get people to like us. Uh, I, had a, I had a photo on Facebook yesterday. It got 30 likes. <laughs> Go me! <laughs> I think it was really because uh, my wife and two children were in the photo. Uh, they're all very cute. Not Laura. She's beautiful. She's not cute. Um, but whatever it is, right? Whether it's in the way we play sport and we talk that up, whether it's in the way we choose our clothes and wear them in a certain way, whether it's in the grades we get and the way we boast about it. Uh, it might even be in the way we speak and joke so crassly and people go, oh, yeah, he's a funny guy. Whatever it is, we try to build an identity tower, don't we? Uh, we try to make a name for ourselves so people will look at us and so we'll feel good. We'll get some sense of worth from them praising us. We pin our happiness on that. But the problem is it never works. Uh, no, if that's the way we operate, that will never actually result in true happiness. No, where that will actually go, where it will lead to, that way of living, is into two things which aren't good. It will either lead to pride or it will lead to despair. Uh, see, if you're continuously seeking that kind of positive evaluation from people, if you're doing things in order to get it, then when you do... What happens? Well, you get proud, don't you? Because you did it. You puff your chest out and you say, yes, I'm great. What sort of a person does that make you? The kind of person that just boasts about yourself all the time. It's not a loving, humble person, is it? But what if it doesn't come? What if the self-praise, the admiration from other people doesn't come after you've been doing all those things to draw attention to yourself? What if you do all that work and no one says anything? You put up that photo on Facebook or tweet it and no one likes it, no one shares it. 
Well, you despair, don't you? You get sad about it. You think no one loves you. You think no one cares about you. Pride or despair, that's where that kind of living leads to. That's what trying to make a name for ourselves results in. It's never joy. It's never going to make true happiness for us. It'll only make proud, puffed up people or desperately despairing people, hopeless people. Genesis 1-11, it's a sad story, isn't it? Kind of goes from God's gift of that wonderful creation where people lived properly. They weren't proud, they weren't despairing. They loved each other because they were secure in God and what he'd given them. Goes from that wonderful starting creation to the fall, to the first murder, through that genealogy of death, the flood with the destruction of the world of God's land. And finally it ends with a city of people just trying to make themselves Proud in rebellion against God. I wonder what you would do if you were God at this stage. There's a lot of imagining tonight, isn't there? Imagine what you would do if you were God at this stage in world history. If you had made the world, if you had created people, if you had breathed life into it. You probably know the Lego Man illustration. Uh, everyone, I'm sure, grew up playing with Lego as little men. The little world. Imagine you kind of made this, you, you spent some time and you made a good Lego world. You kind of sat there and you crafted it and you put these little people in there and then you kind of, you, you breathe life into them. They came alive, the little sea cup hands, they were wandering around. Life was great. Imagine if that was you. And all of a sudden you, you just give them a bit of space, let them do their own thing. They start beating each other up. They start kicking your little trees over. They start ruining your world. You step in and you say, hey guys, don't do that. And they shake their little sneak up hands at you. And they say, rack off, shut up, I don't want to listen to you. What would you do? I'll tell you what I'd do, I would smash them. I would tread on them and boot them. That's what I would do. You know what God does? You know what God does in Genesis chapter 12? He chooses one of them, a little sinner, a little seek-up man, a little Lego man hair, one of the bearded ones probably, and he goes, hey Abram, I'm going to give you everything. I'm going to give you the world. I'm going to take this sad song, this life, this world that you guys have made, and I'm going to make it all better through you. That's what God does. See, in Genesis chapter 12, we actually see God doing something amazing. He doesn't just withdraw and let people ruin themselves. He doesn't just smash us. He actually makes commitment to us, to work through us, to improve our world, to make it better. Not because he had to, but because he chose to. Even though people had hurt him so deeply in their rebellion, God decides that he's going to forgive their rebellion even though what we see in the long run, that will hurt him even more. Uh, What we see in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, is God actually making three distinct promises to this one man, Abram. Uh, It says this, we read it out earlier, but I'll read it again. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred 
and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's three promises there that God says to Abram. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. He says, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a huge family. That's the first promise. Uh, this, this promise gets retold in Genesis chapter 15. Uh, in that little occasion, God tells Abram, he says, go outside, have a look at all the stars in the sky. Sit down and start counting them. Abram goes, one, two, three, four, lost count, starts again, gets up to about a million, and he goes, God says, I'm going to give you more children, more descendants than that. I'm going to make your family great. More descendants than the stars in the sky. You're going to be a great nation. Number two, promise number two, he says, I'm going to give you a great land. Uh, You'll be given the land of Canaan, the promised land. Uh, We find out in Genesis 17 verse 8, he says, go from this country to the land that I will give you. Number three, the third promise, he says, I'll give you a great name. Uh, Through you, through your name, all the nations of the world will be blessed. What God does here in Genesis chapter 12, in these first three verses, these promises he gives to Abram, uh, is he actually goes about reversing that sad story of chapters 1 to 11. Remember how Adam and Eve uh, were God's people, in God's place, in right relationship with him. Remember that last week? Uh, They lived in the Garden of Eden. They were in right relationship with God. Remember how they lost all that with the fall? Remember how it all got wiped out? They were no longer God's people. They were banished from God's place. Their relationship with God was broken. Well, in Genesis chapter 12, God says, I'm going to give that all back. He's promising that they will get it all back. Where sin and death uh, led God... um, where sin and death meant that God uh, could no longer give them life, God says, you're going to have life to abundance. Uh, where you're going to have more life than you can ever dare imagine. More family, more children than the stars in the sky, than the sand in the seashore. Where sin in the days of Noah led to the land being corrupted and, and having to be washed clean, now God says, I'm going to give you a new land. A land that I will secure for you, a land that I will give you, a good land full of uh, milk and flowing with honey, a good land where the people at Babel in their sin uh, had tried to get a name for themselves. God says to Abram, I will give you a great name. He says, in fact, he actually renames him in Genesis chapter 17, verse 5. He says, instead of being called Abraham, which means... Oh, sorry, instead of being called Abram, which means exalted father, he will now be called Abraham, which means the father of a multitude. He gets a new name. The promise is that through him, through one of his descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed. See, what God does is he doesn't do what we would do. We would either walk away or smash the Lego men, wouldn't we? God steps into the scene and he gives. He gives of himself. He gives these amazing promises 
to Abraham, family, land, blessing. And it's all gift, you see. Abraham didn't work to get any of this. Well, that means that he can't actually boast about it. He can't be proud of his achievements because he didn't do it. He just got it given to him. That's the thing about gifts, isn't it? They always actually, they can't make you proud. Now what gifts do is, when you get a great gift, what do you do? You go about you say, hey, Elise gave me this, Anna gave me this. You actually start pointing away from yourself, you point to the giver. For the first time you actually start being selfless. Not trying to get your own attention all the time, but you start pointing away from yourself so that you might be able to love your neighbour. Look at this gift, look what they gave to me. That receiving such a gift, it's actually the first step in changing our selfish hearts, our hearts that actually want to just get attention, glory, all for ourselves. We actually start saying, no, God is glorious. He is good. And it starts freeing us so that we can live for other people. That's what the gift of Jesus on the cross does for us, doesn't it? As we think about how by faith we actually inherit those same promises that were first given to Abraham, how through Jesus' death for us on the cross we become part of that family, of that great nation, that multitude. We're given life, not death, because Christ died for us. As we think about how we who in our sin, we actually deserve to be like those who got wiped out in the days of Noah. Yet because of God's mercy, he says, you can have that new land. You can have life with me in heaven for eternity. Where there is no more pain, no more sin, no more death, no more tears. As we think about how we deserve the name of his enemies, but because of Christ's death for us, he calls us his friends. He calls us his dearly loved children. It actually starts to change us, doesn't it? Doesn't the, the goodness of the gift of Jesus actually kind of, like in Hey Jude, start to get under your skin? Doesn't it start to have an effect on you? When you realise just how great that gift is that we've received? from what we deserve to what we get, changes us. We start to live, start to love like the giver, like Jesus. Take a sad song and make it better. The world will one day be made better. Jesus will return. God never breaks his promise. Jesus will return in glory. He will wipe away all sin, all pain, all suffering, all death on that final day. He will be able to do that. Death will be gone once and for all because he nailed it there to that cross. He took it in his own body on that tree for us. In the meantime, as we wait for Jesus to return, we're to remind each other of the wonder of this good news, of this gospel of what we have because Christ died for us. We just spur each other on in how good the gift actually is. Remind each other of that. Remind each other that we're inheriting these promises. God's family, God's land, God's blessing. 
a great name, all through faith in Christ. And when we do that, it actually starts to make us better people, doesn't it? Christians aren't Christians because they're good. Christians are Christians because they're saved. But receiving the gift of Christ actually means that we won't become proud and arrogant people because we know that we never got in the kingdom of God by ourselves. It means that we won't despair or get disheartened because we know that God will never leave us or forsake us. It actually starts to make us joyful people, doesn't it? It starts to make us selfless. People who, because we love the gift, we love the giver even more. And so we give our life to him out of thankfulness, out of gratitude, out of love. We pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we, we look at that sad story of Genesis 1 to 11. And if it was up to us, none of us would be here. We wouldn't have stood for that sin, that rebellion. But Father, you in your mercy, in your grace, you extended your goodness, knowing full well that your son would have to die on that cross for us in order for those promises to come true. You gave him to us so that we can have life. So Father, would you do a work in us? Would you change us? so that the life you've given us will be the life that we live for you, one where we love our neighbours, one where we we just live in ways that honour you. Most of all, Father, as we go about doing that, as we reflect on the goodness of what you've given us in Jesus, may we go about pointing people to the giver, to the Lord Jesus who died for us. We pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen.